Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers, and welcome to episode number 78 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here as always to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get out in the trails, keep you stoked on those trails, and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. It's all about getting you off the sofa and on the saddle, and I hope you're doing that, and I hope you've had a number of good weekends recently on the bike. I know the weather in Ireland and the UK has been a bit a bit crazy at times, but um, I hope you've managed to get out and get on the trails and uh, have a bit of fun with your friends there and get away from screens and phones and everything else that um, has really taken us away from the beautiful things in life, and that's getting out with nature and enjoying good, good friendship. So I hope the podcast is helping you do that. Now, I just want to say a big thanks to everybody who's been sharing the show via social media. It really, really helps the show and that is the best way to get the show out there and get more people listening and know about the show. So please do that. Just share the show on social media. It would be much appreciated. And for those that are rating the show, subscribing to the show via Apple Podcasts, I appreciate that. And if you're listening via Stitcher, Podbean or Spotify, that is awesome. And I do thank you for that. Now, on to today's show. We are chatting with Chris Dyer about how to become a bike mechanic, what that comprises of, why bike mechanics will never be out of work and how you can build it into a great career. I really enjoyed my chat with Chris. Um, The mechanic side of things is so important in the bike industry now, especially with consumers being able to buy product directly from the manufacturers. Um, It's a scary time for local shops and stuff. So we get into that with Chris. We chat about Chris. He's had a great, great career in the mechanic side of things, knows how that all works regarding shops and, and mechanics and these straight to consumer brands and things like that so we get into that and I know that's quite a big topic that you guys are chatting about at the minute and so we chat to Chris about that we chat to him about a load of things about fixing bikes how you get interested in mountain biking how you get interested in being a mechanic Um, so for anybody looking to fix bikes for a living or get their foot in the door of a bike store then this is the episode for you we chat about being a bike mechanic from the grassroots up what to expect, and why it looks like you will never be out of a job. Sounds good to me. So tune in, folks. I hope you enjoy, and I'll welcome Chris to the MTB Tribe Podcast. Evening, Chris. Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast. How are you, sir? How's things this evening with you? Hi. Thanks for having me on. Uh, things are pretty good here. Yeah? How's things with you? Yeah, I can't complain, mate. I can't complain. It's... um. It's cold in Malta at the minute. It's about 12 or 13 degrees. What's the weather like with you? That's uh, a bit warmer than this year. We were lucky today. It was 10 (laughs) degrees with no rain for a change. (laughs) Very cool. And where are you based? Uh, I'm based in South Wales. So, um, yeah, just along the front of the beach by uh, Port Talbot. Yeah, and we've kind of connected because of Lauren, your girlfriend, the right title. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we connected with Lauren. Lauren was on the uh, the podcast back in episode 74, and she thought I might like to chat to you, which, of course, I, I would love to chat to you because you're a bike mechanic. Yeah, that's right. 
happy days. So I kind of know a wee bit about your area and stuff there and where you're at. It's very nice because I was chatting to Lauren about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into the mechanic side of thing. And you've worked for some of the the big high street retailers, if you like, and you've worked for some independents and stuff. So it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm interested to hear this stuff. Um, but first, tell us a wee bit about your about your background. How did you become interested in mountain biking originally? Uh, actually, it was uh, it was quite a random, uh, just a little outing with one of my uh, mates from oh, way back when, years and years ago. Um, apparently, a group of us were going to get into sort of uh, just go for a ride in the local woods, and I had a mountain bike at the time, but didn't really use it very often. Uh, and it kind of went from there. Took it out with a big group of guys, and. Uh, yeah, I realised how much fun it actually was. <laughs> cool. And when you arrived at the car park, did you realise you were on a full rigid or something and everybody else was running full suspension? Uh, pretty <laughs> much. I did have suspension on the front. Uh, it was, oh, I don't even know what the brand was. I'm pretty sure it might have been a Toys R Us bike at the time. It had about maybe 60 <laughs> mil of travel on the front. Right. Uh, and what age were you then? Oh, I must have been about 14. <laughs> Ah, oh, cool, cool, man, cool. And like, did you? you uh, obviously, you didn't know all the guys when you arrived there. No, I knew, I knew one of them really. Right, that's cool. So that must have been a bit of an eye opener for you. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I, I really wasn't that into bikes at the time. I didn't really give it a second thought. Yeah, and and where was that at? Was that your? That's not where your base now. <clears throat> no, it's down the road actually. It's, uh, I grew up in Swansea, so I'm not too far from there now. So it was one of the local uh, trails near the seafront. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, what can you remember? What the scene was like back then? Like, did did it feel any different back then? Oh, it's changed so much over the years. I mean, I guess as I've got older as well, uh, my perspective of it has changed, especially as I'm more involved in the sport as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I don't know if you, when, when you're a kid riding a bike, you're just doing it purely for fun. You just love getting stinking. You love going fast. Admittedly, I really didn't know anything about it. Um, I just about had a helmet. Um, it didn't really fit, but I had one on, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, back then it was, it wasn't as big as it is, uh, today, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah. It's it's definitely changed a lot. Yeah, and it's changed. Well, you know, the bikes now, I suppose you get a lot more value for your money, really, with some oh, of definitely. the technology and everything you're getting. But back then, I don't know, for me, for me, it, it didn't really matter as much what bike you were riding or, I, I don't know, is that just me? Did you feel like that too? Or I didn't even know there were better bikes until I met other people. Um I just thought, as most uh, people who really are interested in the sport will think, a bike is a bike. It's got two wheels. It, it goes fast if you want it to. <laughs> Some of them are quite I, expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for sure. Uh, so do you think it's changed for the better? Oh, definitely. I mean, you look at your old price points um, from from years ago, you know, back I can remember uh, in one of my local bike shops, you had a bike for, I think it was about £700. I'm thinking, that's that's expensive, you know, that's mega money. Hmm. And £700 these days will get you, you know, uh, sort of a low-end kind of hardtail, you know, a low-end, decent-ish hardtail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you think, you think, has the scene got better as, 
as it's got more and more commercial, do you think it's it's getting better on that kind of connection? Um, I think it is. Yeah, uh, it's, it's encouraging more people to get into it. I mean, obviously, I, I, I remember seeing a price back when I was younger, and obviously I didn't know that much about bikes and thinking that's a lot of money to spend, when in reality that's that's a cheaper bike. So, you know, I, I wasn't even aware that there were bikes beyond that point. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely good that the bikes at that price point are becoming a lot better. A lot, you know, you're getting much better spec bikes for cheaper these days. And it's really good for entry-level riders to get involved in the sport. Yeah, I think so. I would tend to agree. And, you know, you can you can enter the sport quite cheaply and quite well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you can spend whatever you want, obviously. You can buy two or three cars worth on a bike, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Now, I have to ask you because when, when I had Lauren on the podcast, she was telling me that you introduced her to mountain biking on a downhill bike. Yeah. Now, that has raised a few uh, eyebrows via the mm-hmm. podcast. And uh, so let's get to that story. So how did you come to get her starting on a downhill bike? It's pretty crazy. Well, uh, the same friend actually that got me into uh, riding all those years ago. Um, we still ride together today, um, mm-hmm. every every other weekend or so. Um, so when we were both living together, uh, myself and Lauren and Cardiff, he'd come back um, from working away uh, every couple of couple of months, I think it was at that point. Um, so every time he come down, we we go out and ride. So I so sort of got a bit more of an expensive bike by then. Started enjoying the sport a bit more. Mm-hmm. you know progressing as you do um and i think i was going on about it so much that i kind of i think she she got into it just to shut me up initially <laughs> so uh <laughs> yeah i mean it was definitely an eye opener uh, an eye opener for her uh i don't think it was what she was expecting um i think i went into riding kind of a bit backwards cuz i did start you know, as you're a kid, you do a little bit of dirt jumpings, playing on the streets and stuff. But then I always had a thing for downhill when I discovered it. And I was like, that that's when I'm going to ride. So I went kind of just from mucking about on the streets and on dirt jumps, little local trails to go in full downhill, thinking that this is the only type of riding there is. I couldn't even dream, you know, I'd never have dreamed of pedaling. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, we got Lauren a, a bike of her own, uh, took her to uh, one of the local downhill tracks. I, I say local, it was about an hour up the road. Um, I, sh- I think she was ready to give me the bike back on the, one of the first goes. <laughs> yeah, and so you bought you bought her the downhill bike um, surely because that's what you were riding kind of thing. You were, you were doing yeah. downhill at that time. Yeah, I was a little bit ignorant to any of the other disciplines by then. Um, in my eyes, there was downhilling or cross country. Um, there wasn't really an in between. <laughs> yeah, was it? Was the enduro scene even about then? Uh, it wasn't. No, this was um, just before enduro started getting popular. So you kind of had um, your free riders, your downhillers, your cross country riders, and I think trail was starting to get quite popular. So it was um, it was getting there, but it wasn't quite full enduro. I don't think the bikes were. Um, well, the bike I got it was a, an old Norco Shore, um, which would have been, I think, 180 mil travel. Um, mm-hmm. It weighed more than she did, I'm pretty sure. It was quite a hefty bike. Um, 
so yeah, I mean that was technically I think it was a, a free ride bike. So it was at least designed to pedal some places, but it it just wasn't possible. I'm sure it had a double chainring as well. Wow! So, wow! Okay! Wow! That's crazy. But you know, yeah. it's funny. When, it's funny when you think back to that because enduro now just seems so such a natural thing. Yeah, seems, yeah. I mean, you know, it's so weird, isn't it? it well, it's that, that's what we um, sort of migrated towards. So it was only until a few years ago I was still riding just downhill. I had a dirt jump bike. I had a, a road bike as well, um, but it was predominantly downhilling. Uh, and I came back, I remember I came back from doing a, a season in the Alps thinking, I can't ride my bike anywhere unless I push. And I, I'd gotten used to a summer of uplifts, uh, sitting on a chairlift every time oh, I no. wanted to ride. So I think that's kind of what drove me to, to sell the downhill bike and uh, bought my first, first enduro bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yes, cool. And I want to chat to you about working abroad as well, because I'm yeah. sure it's quite interesting. So tell me a wee bit about how you got started working on bikes. What what pushed you in that direction? Uh, it's probably uh, my dad and me not looking after bikes when I was younger. <laughs> um, growing up with my dad, uh, he was a mechanic for cars. Um, he's done it as long as I can remember. Um, and I think the attitude was... Uh, he's not paying for it to get fixed. You either fix it yourself or it stays broken. Mm-hmm. So that kind of pushed me to to work on my own bikes. I had a basic sort of mechanical mind at the time. I know I like to take things apart. Not so good at putting them back together at that point, but I could take it apart really well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's just progressed from there, really. He helped me sort of understand how things would work. And mm-hmm. I'd have to still, you know, work it out myself. And from there, then I had I started working on my friend's bike, and then it worked on some other friend's bikes, and it just got, it just kind of stacked up until um, until Lauren actually gave me the push that I needed to uh, to apply for a bike shop uh, in Cardiff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can blame her really. <laughs> yeah, and uh, when you were doing your own stuff and all. Um... Did you enjoy that kind of thing? Had you a passion for it? I did, yeah. I, I did really enjoy it. I mean, I didn't know enough about it at the time. It was only, obviously, when I started working for the bike shops that I had a bit more training behind it. You know, I could only... I was kind of limited by what I knew because um, <laughs> I was only able to work on my bikes or my friends' bikes. And at that time, a lot of them were just hardtails. You know, they were, there was nothing special about them it wasn't you know they were quite similar the way they were so it wasn't um any way for me to progress really until i actually did work on other bikes mm-hmm. yeah so let's chat a wee bit about that then so you got into the mechanic side of things and I'm, I'm thinking from the perspective of somebody listening to this who's thinking of becoming a bike mechanic and thinking of what route to take or how you can get involved in that kind of thing so how did that happen for you then um, I actually applied for um, an Evan Cycles in uh, in Cardiff. Um, this would actually be the second time I applied for them. The first time I applied to be on the shop floor, I was terrible at talking to customers at that point, um, so I didn't get the job. But I applied again when I know when I saw that there was a, a mechanics post available. Um, mm. Well, I say I applied. Lauren actually helped me write the uh, the cover <laughs> letter and put my CV together. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, you yeah, get a journalist I, to write your CV for you. Yeah, 
definitely helps. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm not too good with typing stuff. I, I just sort of hit the keyboard until it makes sense, I guess. But um, so yeah, I actually went in. Um, it helps having a bit of a mechanical mind. It helps being able to to figure things out uh, as you go. So um, I went in, did a trial day. Um, I'd never built a kid's bike before. And I remember, um, I, can't remember uh, I think it was uh, just a kid's girl's bike with a basket. And I just couldn't for the life of me work out how to put the basket on. Mm-hmm. But I, I spoke to the workshop manager, who I think is still the workshop manager there now, actually. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, um, have a look at the box. I'd missed a bit, basically. Um, Mm-hmm. A Mr. Bracket to to attach to it, and just looking at it, you can kind of work out how it's going to go together. It might not have been right. In fact, I don't think I got it right on the first go. Um, but he could see that I I I could work out roughly how it's meant to go. I could see that how it should go, but not quite how to get there at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a willing uh, willingness to learn definitely helps. Yeah. And what age were you then, Chris? If you don't mind me asking. Oh. Uh, I don't even know how old I am now. Uh, <laughs> like, was this after school or was this? Oh, this was way after school. Yeah, I didn't actually mm. get into the to working on bikes until my early twenties. Mm-hmm. I think it might yeah. be twenty twenty two, maybe. Yeah, well, that's encouraging because I think now the way things go, unless people feel unless you're doing something like that, you know, sixteen or seventeen, or you go and get a degree in something that you can't actually yeah. enter something different. So, so that's really cool. Um, and I take it training wise and all they were quite willing to train you on site and oh, stuff like that definitely yeah i mean um evans at the time were really good um they didn't do SciTech, the industry standard but they did do their own in-house training which was an equivalent um so they'd send us uh, they'd send me off to london um to do different levels of training so it would go anything from uh, basic bike building to start off which is i think how everyone should start off really you know if you can put a bike together you're halfway there um and then it would progress to um i think wheel building um hydraulic brake bleeding um some some of the more technical aspects mm-hmm. uh, and then i think there was an option oh no i don't think they had the option um that's right yeah because uh, evans and some of the other uh high street retailers they don't do in-house suspension servicing so that was something i yeah. really wanted to do at the time but the means to get there weren't there unless i was uh willing to pay for it myself mm-hmm. so evans would send you away on courses to learn how to to do this kind of thing yeah. um and then obviously you'd come back trained and you know show the expertise and the store there oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so what was your goal at that time were you just happy doing that did you want to progress you obviously wanted to work on the forks and stuff like that what were yeah, you thinking I around that time progress. um i definitely wanted to progress uh and, and, and around that time actually bikes were, were just coming on leaps and bounds in technology uh so i wanted to be able to to keep up with as everything was coming out i wanted to keep up with it i think tubeless um conversions were becoming uh, a bit more popular at the time so i was like oh right get in straight on that um, I know uh, air suspension was becoming uh, more popular, more and more popular, and a bit more affordable as well. So I was like, I, I want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, working with um, with that particular shop, uh, there's only so much uh, they can offer as a service to, to customers. So it, I was kind of limited there. But at the same time, um, it was definitely a great place to start. Yeah, and as far as I suppose you're you're only building 
the bikes that are on the shop floor that they have for retail. Yeah. Were people coming in just off the road as well, off the street, to get bikes repaired that they necessarily yeah, yeah. hadn't purchased there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the service that most shops are. I mean, it would be silly not to be able to mm-hmm. offer, um, you know, outside servicing uh, to bikes that weren't purchased there. Um, mm-hmm. Being where we were at the time in Cardiff, it was an excellent place for all the local commuters. I think we were literally two minutes walk from one train, one of the major train stations there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of on a main road, so we had parking uh, available. So, yeah, um, repair general repair work was where I progressed to after the bike building. I think I was quite hungry for for progressing in my uh, in my skills there. So I I think one of the other mechanics that was there before I started had left and straight away I just wanted to jump in. Well, jump in his grave, really. I wanted to, uh, to get in and do what he did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and the maintenance side of things is a wee bit more difficult, do you think? Because you have to assess what's actually wrong first. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, if you've got a kind of a mechanical understanding of things, it definitely helps. Um, I guess after after a couple of years, you kind of get used to it. You kind of know what to expect. You see patterns in what, what in, uh, customers have as issues. Uh, mm-hmm. You've I think at that time, um, Avid Elixirs were quite a popular brake, and I remember every other mechanic would dread them coming in because they were quite um, quite a notoriously uh, awkward brake to service. But you kind of, once you do it a few times, and once you get the technique for it, it becomes quite, not easy, I should say, but it becomes easier to, to sort out. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that's a good way to teach yourself as well. Yeah, I mean, practice makes perfect, really. Yeah. And would you ever be standing in Evans and all of a sudden, you know, a, a big downhill bike or something comes in and you're just like, yes. Uh, I'd appear out of nowhere when, when, when one of those would come in. I, I, <laughs> I, I used to like to not hide from customers. Um, I used to avoid customers. I just like to get on with work, but it was almost like I could sense them coming in. I could hear a loud hub coming in. I'm like, oh, that's going to be good then. <laughs> Yeah, and were you working on road bikes and mountain bikes, and kids' bikes, everything? Yeah, yeah, it was mostly um, road bikes and hybrids, but it could, being in the city centre, um, as I said, we saw a lot of commuters come through, mm-hmm. but every now and then you would see uh, a nice bike come in. Yeah, cool. So you were at Evans. What happened then? How did you progress from there? Um, it was actually because I couldn't progress any further. Um, without uh, the workshop manager leaving, I physically couldn't get any higher than, than I was. Uh, and that was actually how we ended up doing uh, a season in the Alps for the first time. Cool. Uh, okay. And becoming a mechanic out there. Wow. So tell us about that. Was that a leap of faith or? It kind of was, yeah. Um, <laughs> we sorted out, I think we pretty much made up our mind um, a couple of weeks before we were actually going to pack up and move out there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd gotten a job with uh, one of the chalets out there, um, just as a chalet mechanic. Uh, so it was pretty easy work, I should say, because it was a bit of work in the morning and a bit of work in the evening and all the riding in between. Mm. So you're setting up bikes for the clientele the clientele yeah. that are staying at the chalet? Mm-hmm. So basically right. when people would fly over, there's always someone with uh, uh someone's brakes don't work quite right or someone's gears aren't getting set up right you know just just generic things um mm-hmm. but while they're staying there um you've got any number of problems that can happen um, my favorite was uh 
customers who didn't uh, guests who wouldn't uh, get their brakes sorted beforehand or they wouldn't get their suspension service beforehand mm-hmm. uh, they'd be riding out there you know four days into a two week holiday and things would start packing in yeah and that was the real eye opener that was where you kind of went from a a, a ma- you know a mainstream bike shop mechanic to having to actually think on the spot you know i don't have all the tools that i would have had available uh, mm-hmm. straight away i wouldn't have all the parts available straight away so a lot of that was genuine repair work repair mm-hmm. and servicing rather than replacing and servicing yeah so were you out guiding or were you in a support no, I, vehicle I, or um yeah i wasn't guiding i would go ride with uh, a couple of the guests um obviously you you, you need a qualification you need to um I can't remember what the word is for it, but you need to actually be a guide to safely guide out there. But riding with guests isn't a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can suggest where to go or you can suggest they follow you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, uh, it was a hell of a trip. Oh, I, 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 it was a working holiday essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did you get your eyes open there? How was it different? Uh, as I mentioned, it's it's a kind of thinking on the spot. It's, um, you have to say, for instance, uh, one of my guests, uh, their forks are packed in. I I need to be able to work out why they're packed in and how I can then make it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't have had, say, um, boxes are an easy example. Um, a lot of the time it would just be uh, negative air in the lower, so it would just be a lower leg service. But yeah. at that point, you know, I I sort of panicked the first time I saw one. I was like, ah, what do I do? So do a quick bit of research on it. Realize, oh, okay, um, yeah, they've uh, they've obviously not been serviced. They're pretty dry up in there, and they've got a bit of negative air. So it was a case of take them apart, service them, put them back together. Customer's on on his way, comes back, you know, after a week and a half later, thinking that wouldn't have happened if you know if they'd actually gone ahead and serviced their forks first mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the fork thing has nothing you you had no formal training on that so you, did you have to teach yourself how to do all that then yeah i mean um rock shock uh, are actually pretty good for it uh, they do have a lot of uh, uh you can download pdf guides i mean i think they almost encourage you to work on your own stuff mm-hmm. anything you need to know about any of the rock shock or sram products is is already available um from their websites uh, along with YouTube tutorials that they they, they release themselves, so that mm-hmm. was a that was definitely a big help. Yeah, cool. And you know, as far as the riders out there, were they asking for anything different as far as setup goes? Did you see a big difference from? Yeah, um, obviously, riding out there is a lot different from doing you know a couple of you know, an uplift uh, an uplift day over here. I mean, over here you get, say, in my local uh, downhill track, you get 12 to 14 runs in in a day. Uh, and that would be it. That would be your bike taken out after a week of not riding, mm-hmm. done 14 rides, and then it goes back for a week. When you're when you're out there, it's constant. You know, um, say an average ride over here would be three, four minute descent, but you can have anything, you know, 10 to 15 minute descents out there at a time all day. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the bikes are going to start behaving different you know your suspension's warming up uh, a lot quicker over there than it would over here um, but it was a uh, it was nice to see it was nice to be able to to help people set their bikes up you know, a bit more comfortable for them uh, on a longer descent you know what works over here might not necessarily work over there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
the the terrain is totally different. Um, the the length of time that you're riding in one go is totally different. So thinking, uh, for for instance, I had a, uh, had a guest out there who had his suspension set up quite firm. Great for his local tracks. Uh, I can't remember where he's from, but yeah, great for his local tracks. But on um, say Plenty Mainline out there, you know, you do that a couple of times in a day, your arms are going to start killing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, just the way you have to set up your bike and, and everything else. Um, and I think it's something that maybe goes over the majority of people's heads, how that actually works and stuff. Yeah, I mean, as I said, a lot of people are, ignorance not a great word for it, but they're not, they're not aware of what actually goes into making the bikes work. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, people think, I spent a lot of money on a, on a set of Fox 40s, they should work indefinitely forever, perfectly. When, you know, in actual fact, you need to service them regularly. You need to look after them. They, and, and let, you know, they, they may work, they may be expensive, and they may work amazing from new, mm-hmm. but they will, you know, they will wear and tear. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, like anything, totally. And especially if you're putting it through that amount of mileage and, you know, those many hours, it's going to definitely act differently, like you said, you know? Yeah. Well, fifty hours of riding over here can can take anything. You know, it can be over a couple of months. Mm, easy, but yeah. Fifty hours over there, it can be easily done in a week. Yeah, wow, wow, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what uh, what bike were you riding out there yourself? Um, I had my Norco Aurum um, when they just stepped up to six fifty B at that point. Mm. Um, I had one of the older 26-inch wheel uh, Norco Orums as uh, an aluminium frame beforehand, and it was only a couple of months before we went out there um, that I went for the carbon 650B version. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was yeah, massive, massive difference. And as I said, it was only when 650B was starting to become a thing as well. Yeah, so the 29ers were, were out, but the, the 650Bs oh, 20, 29ers weren't. were purely for cross-country riders uh, yeah. at that point, you know, in my eyes anyway. Mm-hmm. So you had nobody arriving out there with 29ers or any, you know, did you have people coming out with bikes that just were not suited for what they were going to be doing? Well, they were suited. As I, as I mentioned, they were only now come, sort of coming into it, but some of the tracks out there are notorious for braking bumps which mm-hmm. sucks for people you know, on 26-inch wheels because that's the size <laughs> of the braking bumps. On a 650B, I was gliding over them. You know, My wheel was that much bigger that I, I hardly notice it a lot of the time. And yeah. it's what people on 29ers are getting now these days. You know, they, They're realizing, oh, these are so much better. And now we on the 650Bs, they're like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Um, so, okay, I take it you enjoyed your experience out there. Oh, I loved it so much. I went back again next year. Oh, really? Did you? Okay. So you come, you came home. What were you doing when you came home then? Between uh, going back? Yeah, I um, I actually bumped into uh, one of my friends who stayed with us in the chalet. Um, he worked for uh, Treads, Treads bikes at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I actually need a plan for when I get home. So uh, spoke to him, spoke to the shop, and arranged. Uh, you know, I, I, I arranged an interview with them. Um, pretty much started with them straight away when I got back. Uh, they knew, they understood that I already planned to go back the next summer. So they were pretty cool about it at the time. So I went back to sort of um, generic bike shop work for, for a couple of months before I, uh, I headed out again for another season. 
Yeah, very good. Did you go to the same area? Uh, yeah, yeah, back in Morzine again. Very cool, very cool. And w- as far as Morzine, I, I've snowboarded in Morzine. I've never yeah. biked there. Um, but do you enjoy that scene out there? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a party scene sometimes. Depend, uh, well, especially around the World Cup time, if they're in, if mm. the riders are in that area, um, everyone seems to converge into Morzine. It's it seems to be a bit of a hub. But uh, yeah, it's a it, it's great, great place to ride. I mean, it's the whole Port de Soleil area. Um, you can go you can go anywhere from uh, say you you can start off a day in Leger and you can end up in Champery by the end of, you know by early afternoon and still be back in Morzine by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Everything's right. You know, you can ride to any location and your lift pass is generally valid in anywhere in the PDS. Yeah, it's, it's cool because I've had a number of guests on and. That seems to be on the podcast. That seems to be their home away from home almost. If, oh, definitely. If yeah, you know, if they head to Europe, Morzine seems to be the spot where they stay the longest. Yeah, I mean, we every year we've lately now we've been saying we'll give Morzine a miss this year. We, you know, we'll try somewhere else, but every year we we still end up there at some point on our trip. Um, <laughs> I think Lauren mentioned um, that we've got a, um, a converted ambulance. Mm-hmm. That we've been uh, we've done some travels around in, and uh, every year we think we'll we'll miss out Morzine, we'll miss out Morzine. But it's on the way; it's on the way to anywhere else that we want to go. So you know, it'd be rude not to stop there. Yeah, exactly. And sure, you know it so well. Why? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> every, well, that's what I think. I think to myself after every you know every trip we've been out there, I was like, oh, it is good, but it's getting it's getting a little bit repetitive. Until mm-hmm. I start looking back through old GoPro videos or seeing someone's put up an edit on uh, on YouTube or Instagram, and I'm like, mm, I do want to go back. <laughs> exactly. Um, so tell us what you're doing now, then, Chris. Where are you working now? Um, I'm working with a uh, cycle to work company um, called Cycle Solutions. Um, at the moment, I'm doing mainly warranty work. Mm-hmm. Which is a bit different, but I did do some of it when I was uh, when I was in Treads. Um, it's it's a bit of a change to what I was used to doing. Um, I did used to work uh, for a local bike shop uh, called uh, Pilot House Cycles, which which was um, quite a high end local uh, bike shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it was custom builds, um, doing a lot of the work that I, I I really wanted to do. So it was a lot of custom builds. It was a lot of um, uh, suspension work it was you know that was where I decided it would be a great idea to strip a reverb down and service it just to see if I could and how difficult it would be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah I took a bit of a step back from that now so I'm uh, I'm doing mainly warranty work which again is great because it gets it gives me the opportunity to see how people are riding and why certain things have gone the way they have yeah it's interesting and what's what would be the biggest failure on bikes, do you think? What do you get the most reoccurring, you know, maintenance problem or issue? The biggest issue with bikes are generally the riders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds silly, but it is. Uh, a lot of it is rider error. So l- the latest one I'm loving at the moment is uh, we've had, uh, I'm yet to see the bike. It's, it's on its way back to me, but um, I've had a 105 rear derailleur. Um, it's snapped in a very peculiar place. Um, it's snapped in a really odd place, uh, but the mech hanger is intact. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's no damage to the spokes and there's no damage to the other side of the derailleur. Um, right. And to me, that screams he's obviously you know, hammering it up a hill and he's downshifting under extreme load. But I've mm. never seen one go the way it has, which is why I need to get the bike back and have a proper look at it. Yeah, and the 105 shifters, that's off a road bike, isn't it? It is, That's, yeah, Sh- that's Shimano. That's a yeah, Shimano. Shimano, Shimano 105. Uh, I've never, ever seen one snap in that location before, and I've broken a few mechs myself um, mm. in a similar situation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my, my, yeah, I've, um, I'm have i more of a SRAM person myself uh, on both my bikes at the moment. Um, just what i'm used to i guess at the moment yeah. but um yeah a couple of weeks ago i, I ripped a, a rear derailleur in half oh um, wow. yeah end of the day as well literally around the corner from the shop so that was lucky ah crazy and talking about shram what do you think of that new cable the shram set up well i'm i'm eager to get hold of some of it uh, to have a proper look um i i'm used to working with um etap their wireless road group set Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time I thought that was amazing I can't wait till they use it on mountain bikes uh, and then we obviously got um, snippets from say Nino Schurter was running it last year and I was like oh it's, it's going to be soon and then it just dropped mm-hmm. so wasn't expecting it when it did, it looks stunning um, my uh, my current bike has actually got um, oil slick decals on it so I need that cassette in my life <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind not having the rest of the wireless system. It's just the chain and cassette that I want. <laughs> yeah. And do you think, as far as you know, looking at bikes from a mechanical perspective and having that eye, do you think SRAM is a wee bit more ahead of the curb than Shimano now? Do you think their R and D's a wee bit faster? They get stuff out to market quicker. I. I don't think quick is the word. I mean, obviously, Stram, um, Shimano have had their DI2 technology out for a while, and obviously that that migrated over into the uh, the mountain bike world with the mm. DI2 XTR. Um, and obviously now it's uh, with DI2, uh, it was able to to sync it with your Bluetooth device, so you can you can um, customize your shifting uh, with you know, on your phone on the go. Mm-hmm. And what's nice is um, eTap sram's road group set before uh the new axis um you have to plug it in uh right. you, you i mean you weren't able to to sort of sync it up you weren't able to have the same readouts as you would for di2 but now obviously you can sync it up to your bluetooth uh, on your phone on your tablet and you can now do the same thing that shimano have except it's wireless mm-hmm. so i i wouldn't say they're ahead i'd say well i would say that they're ahead at the moment but it I wouldn't say they're quick about it. I mean, obviously that that uh, axis uh, was was in development for a long time. You know, we saw little bits of it a couple of years ago, but it was very quiet. And they, I think, they wanted to get it right before they would release it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And you know, the way bikes are going and the way technology is going. Um, yeah. I think bike mechanics are here to stay for a long time. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, as I mentioned, when I was back working with Evans, you know, I wanted to stay ahead of, uh, I wanted to keep up to date with all the latest technology that's coming out. Because, I mean, if, if we can't fix it, if we don't understand it, we're never going to be able to repair it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, for somebody that's interested in it, for some young fellow that wants to get into bike mechanic and stuff, do you think it's a good career? Is, is it something you can have a good successful career doing? Um, yeah, I think you can. Um, I've been doing it for a number of years now and I've done various aspects of it. And as I mentioned, I've, I've done it in, in various countries as well. Mm-hmm. um it can lead you places uh, i've just had a friend now he's um he's just actually starting with uh with one of the world cup teams as a mechanic mm-hmm. um and he's super excited about that uh, i've actually been he's been doing it for a, about the same sort of time as myself i mean it's a great opportunity to go for it's going to take him all over the world mm-hmm. i mean if that I, I think i i myself wanted to do that uh, a few years ago but since then i decided you know I, i'm gonna do it from a different uh from a different area you know i didn't quite want to travel <laughs> i didn't want to yeah. be away from home quite as much but, yeah I mean, and he's it, got the ideal situation well very good and i hope that goes well for him what what a, a great opportunity um but it's tough it's tough on the road because i had alistair beckett who on the podcast who was one of the main guys behind nuke proof yeah yeah um, and he designed the nuke proof for Sam Hill and stuff like that at the time. Um, and he was a mechanic. He he worked as a mechanic mm. um, on on the tours and stuff. And yeah, it just sounds it sounds tough. You're you're a driver. You're a mechanic. You're a coffee maker. You're a you know. Yeah, but here, what an opportunity! Sure, it would be a, it would be amazing to be in around that kind of network of people. Mm. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, you, there's, there's things you can learn all the time. Jason Marsh uh, on the syndicate is a, is a great mechanic to watch out for. Um, re, I think uh, it was last year at some point, he, um, he put up how he bleeds uh, Shimano Saints. And since then, that's the only way I bleed Shimano's. Mm-hmm. There you you know, I, I, it's not the quickest way, but it's the most effective way. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy little little tips and tricks that you can pick up. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, let's chat a wee bit, if you don't mind, about just general maintenance and, and how guys can go about that and stuff. Now, first of all, you've got you just moved into a relatively new house there, haven't you? Uh, well, new to us is quite an yeah. old house, actually. <laughs> yeah, but there's a workshop or a garage beside it, Lauren was saying. Are you going to turn that into a workshop? Uh, eventually I will be yeah um it's a nice size uh, little unit to be honest um there's there's a lot of potential for it and there's a lot of poten- a lot of potential for work in the area as well i mean where where we're located where i think less than 20 minutes drive from avonargoid which is a massive uh, massive amount of trails uh quite local to us an hour, well, less than an hour either way on the M4. Um, we've got Bike Park Wheels and we've got Kum Khan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a great little place, sort of on the way. Yeah. But for a lot of local riders, I mean, especially commuters as well, we're pretty much bang on one of the main cycle routes um, from Cardiff to Swansea. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, it's it's kind of a nice little location. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. I work in a mountain. Well, I say mountain bike store. I work in a bike store here in Malta, just while yeah. we're here for a couple of years. Um, and my background's kind of retail, but I've never really been involved in the mechanic side of things. And it blows my mind the amount of bikes that are coming in every day for repair. And like you say, they're commuter bikes. 
that's what comes in for repair. Um, you will get the yes, you get the, you do get top end bikes coming in, mountain bikes and road bikes coming in for repair. But the the mass the vast majority is all commuter bikes, and they're not good bikes. You know they've they've seen lots of miles and lots of rain. Yeah, they've and, had hard lives. <laughs> um, but you know that's a massive part of that business. It is, yeah, hundred um, percent. I mean, I, I I actually commute myself on the bike. Um, it's just uh, just under twelve and a half miles each way. Which mm. isn't a massive amount, but you know, over a week, the, you know, the miles add up. And yeah. I'm considering how much I look after my mountain bike, my uh, my commuting bike, my road bike actually gets neglected quite a lot. Which is, mm. in the last couple of months, I've ripped a mech in half, my rear axle has snapped, and my cranks, uh, my bottom bracket bearings had gone, and my axle on my cranks uh, started having little fractures on there. So. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's had a bit of love mm. lately. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think when people, young people look at the whole mechanic side of things, they see all these awesome films on YouTube and stuff yeah. from G. Miller and the likes of them guys that are doing these beautiful, beautiful builds. Um, and the workshop's super clean. Everything's in its place. But then you get a bike into your store three or four times a day, which is worth it's not really worth anything. And, you know, you have to spend maybe 100, 150 euro on it to get it going again. Uh, but that's where the majority of your money is being made. Um, do you think that young guys think it's all sparkling, clean, Formula One type stuff? Or do they realize that this is the majority of the things they're going to be dealing with? I was like that when I first started thinking it was just going to be you know great mountain bikes all day every day that I was going to get to work on um it's not it's commuters yeah commuters is what keeping a lot of the local bike shops going yeah there's so many so many miles getting put down and they're hard miles especially with the winters that we get here even the summers actually nothing's particularly nice weather wise mm-hmm. uh we were lucky last year actually so I can't complain too much um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we do get a lot of bikes, uh, especially in my last shop. We don't get um, so much repair work where I am at the moment, um, customer-wise. Um, but in my last shop, we we get a lot of commuting bikes coming in, and the problem is, where you've got to be kind of understanding that a lot of people don't get that bikes need uh, need a bit of money put into them to keep them going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I remember a lot, of, uh, quite a few times actually, I'd have customers coming in. Um, you'd quote up everything that was wrong with the bike, as you do, just to cover yourself mainly. You know, if if they're made aware of anything that's wrong with the bike, um, you can give them a quote for all the work, uh, and they can decide, yeah, I'll go ahead with that, or no, I'll only get this done, or no, <laughs> no chance. The bike's only worth ninety quid. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean. As I said, a lot of people just think it's it's you know it's a bike. It's got two wheels, and why why would it cost so much to keep it going? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It surely is interesting. Now, I would think with you being a mechanic, a lot of your riding bodies um, expect free servicing. Uh, they used to. Um, <laughs> I've stopped doing it so much now. Um, like. I'd, I'd always have a habit of actually whenever I go out for a ride, I used to carry quite a lot of tools and you know, I'd have a little tool roll in the back of my backpack. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I've stopped doing it so much now. I mean, it's, it's all I'll be doing otherwise is fixing customer bikes at work and fixing, uh, 
friends' bikes at home. But I do still do um, I do still do you know work outside of work. We have friends friends' bikes and the likes uh, mm. when I'm home when when I've got five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and you know you're thinking of setting up the garage and, and making that into a workshop. For somebody thinking of doing something similar, uh, what's the outlay like in that? What's the kind of commitment you need to put down onto tools and things? Um, it helps uh, building a tool collection um, over the years. I mean, the, the the fastest way to do it would spend a couple of thousand pounds and get, uh, say, like a Park Tool Master Master Toolkit. Um, that's going to have virtually everything you need, bar a couple of specialist tools. Mm-hmm. Um, is a lot. There's a lot of money involved in in tools, really. Um, that's the quickest way to get it. Or you know, you could go long term, like myself, and just buy the tools as you need them. If they break or if there's something newer, then you upgrade as as and when you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's going to take a lot of work actually to to get it going. And I I think initially we um, myself and Lauren wanted to to set up like a bike shop you know that would have been a dream of ours to, to set up yeah. a bike shop but the way things are going at the moment especially with um uh, a lot of internet company you know internet mm-hmm. shops uh, it is making it quite difficult for a lot of the local bike shops to keep up you know se- uh, sales wise so i think that's yeah go on sorry yeah i was just going to say you know it is an issue when you've got straight to customer brands you know yt canyon yeah and you know, I'd be interested in your opinion on it because I can only see that from just putting on my retail mind, I can only see that growing over the years. More companies starting to do that and making bigger profit margins or giving the customer a slightly better bike for a less price, whatever way you want to look at it. But how do you think over the years when there's more companies doing that, more brands getting their product to their customers like that, certainly you would think, they're going to have to set up some kind of system with local retailers for maintenance and spare parts and things like that. Um, I think that's why bike mechanics will pretty much always have a job. It's when needed. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if, if eventually, you know, say a couple of years down the line, it was only, you know, internet sales, we'd still have to have workshops to fix those bikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, and this is something I, I come across on both sides of it, um, you have a customer, you're in a bike shop, uh, and someone brings a bike that they've bought online somewhere else, and uh, there's an issue with it from new, mm-hmm. or say, you know, they don't know how to put it together, they bring that to you, you kind of don't want to don't want to put it together because it's not your bike, you know, they, they could have bought the same bike with yourself, albeit maybe for a little bit more money, but at the same time, They'd be saving money on uh, on repair work and build costs. Yeah. But on the other hand, say you you know you're that internet retailer, you 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 might not have the means to to get that bike back, or it might be you know less not cost effective to get that bike mm-hmm. back and work on it yourself. So at the same time, you kind of want them to take it to a local bike shop. So it, it is kind of difficult on both ends. I think a lot of local bike shops are quite reluctant to work with online retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they need to in order to, to survive almost. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about it, what we were talking about there previously about setup and about how you would have to set your bike up for different uh, riding conditions and whatever, you know, I think there's definitely a case there for the likes of some of these companies to set up 
some kind of system where the customer goes online, orders the bike off them. They then select their local bike shop. The bike is delivered to the bike shop. And then the bike shop, obviously, for a charge, sets the bike up, gets, you know, correct for the rider and where he's going to be riding, etc. Um, and then all the maintenance comes back to the store as well. Um, now, you're maybe not going to make as big a profit doing that than selling a bike yourself, but you have to carry less stock and cash flow and there's all these things. I think that's maybe the way we'll have to see it going in the future. Do you think you can see that happening? Do you know what? I, I do agree with you on that. Um, that is, I think, in an ideal world, the way it should go. Mm-hmm. Um, not should go. I think that's the way it will go. Um, uh, as I mentioned, you know, um, it's kind of two ways to look at it. I mean, the bike shop themselves might not think it's a great idea. Yeah, they're not going to make as much money. They're only going to make uh, labor costs. But at the same time, that's money that they might not have got, you know, if the if they were paired up with, say, an online retailer. Yeah, but I mean, there's only so. Uh, but then, if you look at it again, okay, if the customer bought the bike there, you may have to to price match, say, to um, in order to get that sale. So at that point, then you're you're a bit more reluctant then to to offer any any discount on uh, on labor or anything. So there's mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 quite a difficult subject, I think, to to approach. There's so many angles you want to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a and it's definitely changing. The the whole thing's changing, and um, you know, with a lot of closure of bike stores, it's difficult to know how it's going to end up. But you know, it's like we sell in our store. We sell Orbea. Now, if somebody wants to buy a Rallon Orbea, which is one of the top end, um, they can come into us and they can choose whatever color scheme they want you can do your own personalized color, color oh, scheme you've got the uh, the mayo bear as well have you yeah yeah it's a great so, idea that yeah so you can do that and okay there's they're still buying the bike off you but it's something similar you know so why could yt or canyon not set up something like that with retailers uh, you know with bricks and mortar retailers that a customer could come in and choose what bike they want get you know, advice from professionals about mm. what bike would suit them best. Kind of do it that way. I don't know. I just think there's something there that needs to be looked at in a wee bit more detail. I think the only problem there would be um, uh, costs, time. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone's got to pay that retailer for their time spent, uh, you know, going, talking with the customer. I mean, they're trying to keep their, co- their, you know, their prices down by cutting out a middleman. Yeah. And I think that's that. That's the key point. There is cutting out the middleman for them. I don't think they'd want to bring in a middleman mm-hmm. to kind of go over options. I mean, it would be really nice to be able to fully customize a nice uh, a nice new whitey Capra for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> but you you really can't do that at the moment. I mean, with the volume that they're a uh, volume of orders, I'm sure they're getting at the uh, at any given time. They mm-hmm. don't have the means to to customize every you know every single bike that goes out. Yeah. I think Orbea, great bikes are fantastic bikes. Um, we we well we actually um, uh, sell them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, you know, that my Orbea uh, idea is amazing. You can customize every aspect of it almost. Mm-hmm. But they're a much smaller company, I think, than uh, than say YT and uh, and Canyon. Yeah. I mean, they are more expensive, mm-hmm. but that's because I think they're taking the time 
to customize to make that bike unique to you yeah yeah and you can only do it in the top end ones as well i don't mm-hmm. you can't do it in the kind of the cheaper the lower end ones no no um, yeah it's it's very interesting and you know they they have obviously thought of that and maybe thinking well this is a way we can maybe you know compete with the likes of yt we can offer you a very very personalized bike mm. you know and we have you know last week we had two customers come in and do that so it's guys like it you know yeah i mean it's a great experience for the customer as well it gets them excited you know that they're, they're there I, I remember buying my first proper bike you know i i, I remember looking for ages uh, um say it's when that norco Orum came out i remember seeing one in the flesh first I'm thinking, I like that, but I want one in black, you know, because yeah. everything's got to be a black at that point. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I got excited about when I realized, oh, it actually does come in black, you know, and I, you get you get riled up for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of um, that, uh, what the um, Obeya does kind of like reawakens that feeling, um, almost like buying your own personal bike for, for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's very true. And when you're spending that amount of money, it's it's nice to be able to customize it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> cool. Now, before I let you go, Chris, um, I know it's getting on a wee bit. Uh, if there was somebody wanting to get into the mechanic side of things, what advice would you give them? How are they best starting out? What's their best route to get started? Best place to get started is um, uh, as I well, as I did on my own bikes. I mean, if you've got a general understanding of how your own bike works, you've got a good sort of baseline to, to understand how all bikes work. Mm-hmm. Well, all bikes is, is probably not the uh, the best uh, best way for it. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to understand how a pinion gearbox works if you've got mm-hmm. yeah, external gears. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a basic understanding, if you can if you can understand your own bike, it, it's a it's a great place to start. Yeah, and then just obviously for employment would be just to do something similar to yourself, just try and get into some of yeah, the Yeah, go for it. I mean, go in, um, just take take even a low position there. I mean, if you're just building bikes every day for, for the first year, you'd be surprised how much that hones your skills in. You, uh, I remember the first time I, I tried to learn gears. I struggled with gears quite bad when I first got into it. Uh, I remember it would take me about 10, 15 minutes, you know, sometimes longer to set them up right. Now you can almost do them automatically. You don't even have to look half of the time. You know, you just know by feel how much mm-hmm. tension is too much tension or if it needs less tension. Indexing, you almost know it just uh, as an instinct now. So, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, go into it as bike building. Uh, I think it's the best place to start and grow from there. Mm-hmm. and it's funny isn't it it's interesting you know from an outsider you would think that the bike building thing would be the last thing you would learn that would be the hardest well <laughs> i say bike building i mean bike building for most retailers is uh, a lot of the bikes come pre-boxed um yeah. sure you know you know a lot of it is just people think oh you're just putting a wheel on and turning the bars yes and no you're put, t- putting the wheels on you're turning the bars but then you're also making sure that bike is safe you know, you, mm-hmm. you understand, you start to learn about torque settings, uh, tolerances, you know, um, you, you start to learn about British standards when you start doing SciTech and, and the likes. Um, but then on the opposite end of that scale, um, in a lot of independent stores, like um, uh, when I was in Pilot House, we did a lot of custom bike building. 
So mm. it would almost be like with Obeya, where you get to choose all the bits to go on there, except it's the, the long way of doing it. Yeah. You know, we'd have customers come in, we'd, we'd get them started on a base frame, and then we'd give them any option they could want, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, so you start in a frame, and then you could choose your hope components or whatever you want it to choose gen- and put gen- on. Generally, hope or Berg tech, I think we like to do. Um, we worked a lot with uh, Santa Cruz bikes that we'd have in. Um, one of my favorite builds was uh, a Santa Cruz chameleon. Uh, fantastic little hardtail, um, full invisi frame on it, which I weirdly find quite therapeutic to do. <laughs> um, full invisi frame on there. We went full. Um, color matched almost hope purple components to go with the decals on the frame mm-hmm. uh and then we finished it off we thought we'll keep it you know kind of a british finishing kit and we went uh berg tech finishing kit so we'd have the berg tech bar stem saddle seat posts you know it, it all sort of came together really nicely uh and i think the customer was uh well beyond chuffed with it yeah that's that's cool and you know what could you get people spending on bells like that uh, depends what their budget is. I mean, that's that's the first question I had, um, and it, it's almost like a rude question. <laughs> but well, when I have customers coming in, um, my first questions would be, "What kind of bike are you after, and what's your budget?" Because mm-hmm. it's all well and good me saying, "Oh, we're going to put you on a you know a Nomad CC," you know, and they've mm-hmm. got, "Well, I've only got say I've only got three and a half grand." Okay, so we'll put you on the Nomad Aluminium then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, no. it depends entirely on what their budget is. Yeah, no, it's an important. It's important to know. There's no point in you trying to sell something or advise something when they don't. They can't spend that amount of money, or 100%. they want to spend double that. You don't know exactly. Yeah, I mean, if I've got a rough idea of what they're willing to spend, um, I can spec it as close to. Well, I can spec it almost exactly what they want. You know, and especially with an independent store, I didn't mind. Um, discounting some of the part you know discounting some of the labor um involved with it in order because I, I i feel like if that bike's not complete if that bike is missing that one component because it's not in their budget i don't i you know i didn't mind trying mm. to trying to work it around to incorporate that because at the end of the day i mean it's your reputation or that's up there as well yeah no definitely with builds like that that would be a very important side of it yeah yeah, cool. Well, listen, Chris, I could chat to you. I could chat to you all night about mechanical stuff, and <laughs> it really is interesting. And I suppose with me getting kind of an insight into what goes into that from the maintenance side and the store that I'm in now, um, you know, them guys need to know so much. There's so many different wee things come in every day. Just so many different wee, you know, maintenance issues, and you need to know so much. So you have to be switched on. Yeah, you really need to be on the ball with a lot of things. As I said, a lot of them, they're kind of similar problems, but it's all the individual brands, you know, there's different way that these problems can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so much stuff out there. Man, there is so much brandage of stuff out there. It is unbelievable. It's, you know, you've got 8-speed, 9-speed, 10-speed, 11-speed, you know, and you need different chains. You well, need I was going to say you, know, you could go up to 12-speed, but a rotor yeah. released that 13-speed back at um, back in last <laughs> summer. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I said the same thing with 12-speed, and then I went and bought it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, well, you have to. You, you need to try it out. You're just testing stuff out, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> you know, I, can't, I like to know how it works, you know? 
Yeah. Well, here, Chris, thanks so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, and say say hello to Lauren for me and, and thank oh, her we'll for do. for getting you on. So that that's awesome. And here, I hope everything goes well uh, where you're at and stuff. Are you are you planning to go away again this this summer or? I think we're doing another trip this summer. Um, we we did it again. We said we're not going to do Morzine. We'll we'll probably be in Morzine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yeah, we're going to go a little bit more. Um, we went to Italy a few well Switzerland and Italy a few years ago um, just for a brief trip around um, Motolino bike park uh, and I love it there and mm-hmm. I think the area is amazing as well so I think we're going to try and have a look down that way a bit more this year. Yeah, cool. Well, I hope that all goes well for you and um, you uh, don't break too many derailers and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, here, Chris, thanks so much. I appreciate it, man. It was it was great to have a chat with you and uh, hopefully it's helped some, you know, some kids kind of know a wee bit more about it in, in a kind of general way and um, hopefully they'll take that leap and step in and, and do something they love because you obviously love it and you have a passion for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, thanks for having me on as well. No problem, mate. It's a pleasure. Have a good evening. And you. That's it for episode number 78. I hope you enjoyed that, folks. And Chris, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to chat to you. Uh, The mechanical side of things is just crazy in the bike industry at the minute, and I think it'll only go from strength to strength. So thanks so much for coming on. I know people will enjoy listening to the podcast because we all like to tinker and think we're we're a bit of a mechanic but um, obviously there's a lot more goes into it than that but uh, thanks so much Chris I really enjoyed uh, getting you on the podcast and good luck in the future now folks if you want to know more about Chris just go to the MTB show notes uh, for Chris's episode simple to find just go to mtb-tribe.com just go through the episodes there you can search for Chris's episode and um, you'll find out more about what we chat about and you'll be able to get in contact with Chris via there if you want any more info or be able to follow him on his socials and stuff like that to see what he's getting up to. Now folks, thanks so much for being a part of the MTB Tribe podcast. I know there wasn't a podcast last week, but if you were listening to the previous one, you'd have known I was away snowboarding and stuff. And um, I just had a great week chilling out with a few friends um, I had no major injuries, which is always a good thing, and uh, conditions were okay. We had um, we had a, a half a day of powder, I suppose. We were in La Plagne in France, and it's a great, great resort. Um, has loads of potential, and I'd love to see that place with a big snow dump. Um, but there was guys there on bikes too, and um, that just looks crazy. Them guys are are not as you know. Um, but uh, it was all good. So thanks for tuning in. Now, if you want to get more involved in the show, you can follow us on social media, of course. We are at MTB Tribe on Instagram and Facebook. And if you would want to subscribe to us of what we'll be chatting about, you can simply do that by going to mtb-tribe.com and just go to the subscription section, fill in your email, and you will get one email a week. No more. I will not bombard you with junk. Nothing like that. So, folks, thanks so much for tuning in. I do appreciate you being here, and I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you want to help the show, just simply share it with friends. Rate on Apple Podcasts. Just do your thing and get the word out there. I would really, really appreciate that. Now, we have a very exciting podcast next week. And um, it's getting a wee bit back to the grassroots of racing, etc., etc. But I'm really excited to have them on the podcast, and um, I hope you enjoy. So, tune in next week for another MTV Tribe podcast. But until then, have a great week, have a better weekend, and I hope you get pushing the pedals.